Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. I'm Stephanie Luce, and I'm thrilled today to be speaking with Judy Gonzalez and Bob Master. Welcome, Judy and Bob. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I want to start off, Judy, uh, your union just won a huge strike. You, you won a big victory earlier this year. Can we start by you telling us about that strike and what you won? Yeah, I mean, the strike in the two facilities that went out, I'll talk a little bit more about Montefiore in the Bronx. Uh, we kind of had a perfect storm that uh, created a good background for this. You know, after COVID, with all the abuse, with the shortage, with so many nurses leaving, the fact that the hospitals were paying travel nurses three times what the nurses were making, this oppressive employer behavior, ignoring contract, unilateral changes, floating all the issues that went on. In my particular hospital, the maltreatment of our patients due to their demographics, it's a, mostly a poor community of color. And the contradiction between how they treated Westchester patients was really on our mind and in our demands. In addition, our previous contract was seen as a sabotage and members were angry because of that. People really wanted to go on strike. <laughs> they, they felt that it was a sort of a natural feeling that the employer needed to understand that we were not going to tolerate abuse anymore. And that was a very strong sentiment. But of course, you have to organize for a strike. So we had a lot of support, but of course, we had to build. And I think we'll talk about that later, how you build toward a strike. But our wins were extraordinary. For four months, we made about 2% progress. The 10-day notice prior to the strike, we made a lot more progress in the last 24 to 48 hours. It's particularly in the last eight hours, we got uh, revolutionary language. We got staffing enforcement language in the contract with financial penalties. No other hospital has that in the country as far as we know, or probably internationally. Sinai and I worked very close together, and I, I mean our team. We were in communication, so we kind of fed off each other. We got more money than the other places. Uh, we got ER ratios, which they said they'd never do. We had substantial benefit increases, even though we had the best benefit plan in the state. We had massive flow pool differentials and the hospital just, just couldn't possibly function. Uh, we also got community demands. We have about seven agreements about improving care to the community in our contract, including patients getting a discount for understaffing <laughs> as one of the options for an arbitrator. And, you know, a lot of work will go into enforcement. And just recently, just so you know, Mount Sinai won an arbitrator's award that uh, over $100,000 in back pay for nurses who are understaffed. And the concept is you get paid the difference between the nurse that was there and wasn't there. And it's divided among the people who are working. So it was just just radical and revolutionary. And um, the nurses had such a sense of solidarity and power that they had never before seen. In fact, many were disappointed that we went back on the fourth day because they were planning barbecues and bringing dogs and kids. And, <laughs> and we had also phenomenal community support. So it was a raging success. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Um, really exciting to hear. And now, Bob, I just want to hear from you. You're with a union, the Communications Workers of America, that has perhaps some of the most strike experience in the last several decades, striking even in the midst of a labor so-called downturn when very few unions were striking. Can you tell us a bit about that history, the strikes that your union has been waging? Sure. You know, there are a variety of reasons that contribute to the CWA's willingness to go on strike all through the 80s and 90s and 2000s when strikes had virtually disappeared from the repertoire of the labor movement. You know, as, as you well know, Stephanie and Judy, you know, down to sometimes single digits um, in recent years in terms of large strikes. A lot of it had to do with the history and tradition of militancy that existed in telecommunications in New York, starting with a historic strike in 1971 that lasted for seven and a half months. And so a lot of our current leadership came out of that experience and had 
memories of, of outlasting the phone company and standing up to, to the pressure of, of a long strike. That was repeated again in 1989. We had a 17-week strike uh, against the company that was then called Ninec over healthcare cost shifting, the attempt by the company to force our members to pay for healthcare. So there are many factors, and we could talk a lot about them in depth that have to do with sort of traditions of workers' control among certain groups of the workers, uh, about being in New York, about working for a company that you know could relocate some jobs, like customer service jobs, but the actual telecommunications network can't go anywhere. You can't run the New York, New England, New Jersey phone network from Singapore or something like that. So that gave people a lot of confidence. And I do think the most important factor was that these traditions were handed down from generation to generation within the workplace. People were proud of of, of what they had done. And I, the last comment I'll make is it did definitely, in the union, spill over to other bargaining units. We had, a, as Judy knows, a, I think, a 40-day strike in October of 2021 at the Catholic Health System. Uh, in Buffalo, which was over the same issues. We had similar results. I'm not sure we did quite as well as uh, the New York nurses did, the New York City nurses, but it was very much a strike about uh, safe staffing, about patient care, about the public good. So, you know, there's kind of a, a, a synergy that exists when people see other people in the union going on strike. They're like, hey, we can do that too. So you both have come from traditions of successful strikes, winning, and that's great to hear. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the realistic side of striking, because it sounds easy, perhaps from the outside, just don't go to work, right? Why don't we have a general strike? So um, I'm going to ask both of you, um, start with you, Judy, what does it take to really prepare for a strike? What are some of the challenges you face? So let me talk first about the challenges. You know, there's always fear and there's this lack of member engagement, especially in a field where things have been cut. And I guess that's all over the country. You know, there's demoralization. The idea of a strike is new to a younger generation. Uh, in Bob's and my generation, which I assume is pretty similar, <laughs> you know, we grew up as children of parents who grew out of poverty with uh, with the advent of unions and had very strong sense of what a union can do. So that it's, that's a very different culture. Um, the bosses always drag over negotiations over months. You know, there's a lack of trust very often for the union uh, with the boss's propaganda. For us, it was our last contract. Um, and for nurses, you know, there's ethical concerns. What will happen to my patients if I go on strike? So we had to deal with all of that. Also, people acting collectively in, in various industries, and I don't know uh, outside of healthcare, but there's a lot of infighting. ER wants to give a patient to a floor. ER is understaffed, floor is understaffed. There's fighting that goes on from the OR to the floors, to the floors to the ICUs, nights to days. There's not a sense of collective action in their day-to-day -day functioning, which management takes advantage of. And I find there's a kind of a new individualism that I see fairly prevalent, less collective sensitivity about how you have to win together. People are sort of feeling like they can negotiate their own thing, that they're a little bit more entitled. So those were very difficult challenges. Uh, what we did was we had years of logistical and ideological preparation. That was critical. Uh, this clarity of why we're doing this, what are our issues. Uh, we had our list of demands. Members signed up, had a sign that, yeah, I support those demands. We had petitions where people signed the demands. We have uh, protest forms that people would fill out where they would get energized by the fact that we were exploited. We had strike interest cards. We had, you know, obviously one-on-ones. This is all props to get one-on-one face-to-face conversations. And we had recruited leaders that we called CATS, Contract Action Team members. They had a little cat button, little red cat. Um, and, and also coordinating our bargaining in the other areas. We had, uh, this was new. We had a deadline, like by the deadline. We always would negotiate a year past that expiration. You know, a strike or contract was a kind of feeling. And uh, the conversation we had in advance of an open-ended strike. 
uh, preparing people, saving money, signing up with agencies. We're fortunate we can get outside jobs. So that was a critical issue because very often people, even if they agree with you, they're afraid of losing money. And also we had open negotiations with a hybrid. We had in-person hybrid with Zoom. So people, we had sometimes hundreds of people listening to management be horrible and us fighting. Uh, we had escalating actions. And when we, uh, we had many, all kinds of communication methods. And at the end, we had just before the strike, 1,500 people on a Zoom at a time. We had to have two Zooms so we could have more than 1,000. People were totally, totally, totally engaged. And of course, that momentum built up over the 10 days from when we put in the 10-day notice. So by the time we went out, even people who kind of said, well, I don't know if I'm going, once they saw the news, 7 o'clock in the morning, everybody showed up. I think they, they just, they wanted to be in it. Mm-hmm. And that was incredible. Um, Bob, can I ask you the same question? What are the yeah, challenges? sure. And and the answer is very similar. Um, you know, we have a, a, a long-standing history of instituting a program that we in CWA since the 80s have called mobilization. Uh, it originated with our state worker bargaining unit in New Jersey, and basically it's a very similar kind of program to what Judy described. It's designed to build an expanded structure within the workplace. Um, we call our folks mobilization coordinators. And there are a group of people that we recruit to supplement the stewards body. There are people who get involved without having to make a commitment to process grievances, but want to be people who are a part of the transmission belt of information uh, that comes from the union to the members. We usually start a year or more in advance with an education program. In, you know, in a bargaining unit of say 35,000, you know, we'll want to put three or 4,000 people through a day long training that familiarizes members with the finances of the company, the future of the industry, the history of what uh, we've had to do to win the contract that we have. You know, the first activity that we do in this training is we, we put a list of contract gains and a list of job actions and we have people draw the line, which which job action produced, you know, fully paid medical benefits in 1970 or whatever it is, you know. And then once we've gone through the training phase, we start an escalating series of actions to test people's involvement, to let them know that there's a contract fight going on, to begin to send the message to management. First, we have an activity a month. And then when we get closer, we have an activity every two weeks. And then by the end, you know, we're having two activities a week, culminating usually, you know, in what we call just practicing picketing, where we have people out, you know, the Wednesday or Thursday before the expiration on Saturday with signs before work saying just practicing. So, you know, it's really about, you know, what Judy said is like engaging the members, educating them, giving them an opportunity to demonstrate their concern and their anger as you escalate towards expiration. I want to dig in a little bit more on that idea of training. Can you say, are workers getting paid time to attend these trainings? Are they doing them on their own time? Are they, you know, what are the logistics of of how you get people to come to trainings? You know, it's funny. It's, you know, we really first did this in 1988. And uh, I guess my memory is failing me. I don't remember how we got people off the job. I think the locals did it on the weekends or after work. Since then, the union started some special project funds. We have a huge member relief fund, got about $450 million in it to pay weekly strike benefits. But we also have these smaller special project funds that can pay uh, lost time wages for people to attend training. So the last couple of cycles, we've actually reimbursed the locals for lost time wages for our members to participate in the training. Right. Yeah. And Judy, same question for you. Well, we're, we're kind of lucky because we have continuing education time and money built into our contracts. 
of course, not for union training. So we were able to craft our training in language that had to do with patient care. So we could get continuing education credits from accreditation agencies. And so, so instead of saying, fighting the boss for staffing, we say, you know, strategies to improve care for patients by having adequate number of nurses taking care of them. You know, organizing the community to support your strike. It says being in touch with your community to know how to care for them. You know, like, and we get credits and sometimes people could take time off. Otherwise, people would just go on their own time. The real committed ones will go on their own time. But again, we're a largely female workforce and people are in the sandwich generation, taking care of kids, taking care of spouses, unfortunately, having to do that. And also taking care of parents and other relatives. And especially because we're nurses, it's tripled. So it's hard for people to make time. And also being in the North Bronx, people, we used to have a lot of people living in our community and now people have a big commute. So for people to come on their day off, they're talking maybe about an hour or more of of traffic and finding childcare. So, but yeah. We have steward training, we have advanced steward training, we have specific training, we have role-playing, all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the strike fund as well? A strike we fund. don't have a, <laughs> we're, we'd like to have a strike fund. <laughs> There's been a big divide between public and private sector that was fomented by the former union leadership, which we're still trying to get out from under. So we have a hardship fund for people with hardships. I think we need a strike fund, but I think the concept of the hardship and nurses saying we'll help each other and the ability to get jobs and to do overtime. We had an overtime program we agreed to when the shortage came where people got $500 for doing additional shifts in some of the areas for the year prior to the strike. And we told everybody, put that money in an account every, for every overtime shift you do. Save your money, save your money, save your money, save your money. And then people, we also gave agency lists to people so they could get jobs Great. if need be. Yeah, I've heard some, uh, we had a Teamster speak at a conference that I saw you last week and talking about, you know, preparing for a strike a year out and and doing that same kind of advice with members is really thinking ahead, what are, might be your financial concerns and how can you plan in case this comes to be. So I guess that leads into a next question, which you've both started to touch on, but just thinking about the factors that make for a successful strike, what does it take? Bob, I'll start with you. Well, I think the key lesson that we've learned over the last 30 or 35 years is walking around on a picket line in front of a truck facility is just not enough to win a strike. That a strike is a a multifaceted program that takes in lots of different aspects. I mean, you have to have a strong message. You want to be able to project to the political class, to the public, that your strike is not selfishly just about wages or just about benefits, but it addresses some of the broader concerns of the community. And here I'll I'll make reference to this formation that's developed over the last five or 10 years called Bargaining for the Common Good, which, you know, is a group of unions taking a lot of inspiration from the Chicago teachers that understand that, especially in places like healthcare or in education, you can talk about issues in a way that involves the needs of the community. And then you have to try every different kind of tactic that you can imagine. In the 2016 strike that we had against Verizon, we sent a delegation of call center workers to the Philippines to meet with workers in call centers in the Philippines who were doing our struck work while we were out. Um, a lot of them had spontaneously actually tried to slow down and and undermine the company's effort to outsource our work. And we had a big run-in and the company management there called a SWAT team and our people were surrounded in a van for a few hours. And you don't often find out from management what it is that affected them. You never really know in a situation. You kind of throw everything at the wall and, and see what makes the difference. But the CEO at the, in, the, in, in the end game of negotiations 
kind of admitted to to our chief bargainer like oh, that 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 uh, sending those people to the Philippines that was a great idea. And this is from management. So you, you know you try things like that. You know we did a certain amount of, of paid media. We had big rallies. Um, you know you you have to think about all the different potential pressure points. Are there members of the board of education who work at some liberal arts college that you can get students to put pressure on them? Um, the last thing I, I'd say about our most recent strike was we were also on strike against Verizon Wireless, and we knew that in terms of what the company really cared about, people going in and out of Verizon Wireless stores was one of the most important things. We made an effort to picket as many Verizon Wireless stores all across the country as we could, and we enlisted allies, we enlisted the rest of the labor movement to help us with that picketing. Um, let me just follow up with you, Bob, for a point you talked about bargaining for the common good. For people who don't know, like this is the yeah the idea that you can build alliances with people you work with, which is generally thought of as something easier to do in the public sector, particularly teachers with students or nurses with patients. So I'm going to ask Judy about this too. But Bob, you're in a, a field that's not as obvious, and first in the private sector in general, and then also how to build those um, connections with. Verizon customers. Yeah, so, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that dynamic? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's more challenging in the private sector. I mean, we did in 2015, 2016, the contract actually expired in 2015. You know, we, we worked without a contract for seven months before we went out. We actually brought the mayor of Kingston and the mayor of Syracuse to the bargaining table and had them present to the company about why they should build Fios in their communities. These were communities that had been bypassed for high-speed internet. So we made an effort, and I would be pretty self-critical there. I don't think we did enough with that, but that sort of suggests a direction that we were able to go in, sort of saying, hey, you know, more jobs for us, building out Fios in communities that have been bypassed by Verizon because they're focusing on the suburbs and not on inner cities. And I do think, you know, going back to 89, when we were striking over healthcare costs, you know, where the company was trying to force us to pay for medical, our slogan was healthcare for all, not health cuts at 9x. So we were again trying to situate ourselves, you know, in a broader fight about the future of healthcare in the country. I do think that in the public sector, where you're fighting over quality of services and class size, about even issues like the recent, you know, Chicago teachers' strikes about affordable housing for teachers to live in the city, you have opportunities to really frame these things, you know, it, it, as what I would call class-wide as opposed to sectoral demands. Thank you. And Judy, um, you know, you've already talked about patients, how they benefited from your strike and your campaign. So I uh, just want to ask you to talk a little bit more about that and how you build those connections, how you win support for your, for your strike. Yeah, I, th I think you have to divide it up. First of all, there's this dichotomy that's created between community and worker, you know, the union member and the community. And we are part of the community and the community are in unions or in shops and working. So it was really important that we broke that down. That solidarity was critical for us and, you know, for everyone. Uh, but the first thing you have to do for people to be willing to take the risk of striking is to make sure that you have a presence on the shop floor and that the nurses or the, the members know that when there's exploitation or, or problems, they have to look at, you know, they, they, they collectively resolve it. So we did, we did a lot of on the ground work and we've always done that. You know, we don't resolve, we don't fix things. We teach people how to fix things. We give information, you know, teach a man to fish kind of thing. And people feel power that way. You know, confronting your manager versus somebody coming in and saving you as a lawyer, it's a whole different dynamic. And so that had been ongoing 
also talking about the history that I think is really important. A lot of nurses walk into a $100,000 a year job. When we started in nursing before the series of strikes that quadrupled our salaries in the 80s, I got WIC coupons when my daughter was born. Our salaries were incredibly low. Uh, and I think the female teachers were in that same situation. So understanding the history of all the gains we've made through struggle and people learning about that. They don't know about that. They don't know about a lot of things. So that was really important. So doing that on the ground work and having people trained to set, instead of saying, what's the union going to do about this in our shop? It's what are we going to do about this? Taking that third party to the I'm, I'm it uh, was critical. And people saying, we're going to resolve this together. So that, that building. In terms of the community, we had been based in the community for years. We, cre- we served the community on different levels when it had nothing to do with our, our rights and our contract, just to be there because we we care for our patients. So we had huge coalition with a lot of community organizations. And you know, some of the politicians were really great. Some of them were got a lot of money from the hospital. So we had to manage that. But our, our commitment, our political community organizing focus was community, not so much the elected leaders, because we knew that that was what would make a difference. I also think, aside from the preparation and knowing history, knowing that we're making history. And I think I really want to give kudos to the Buffalo strike that we kept talking about that strike, what happened with Kaiser, uh, not Kaiser, with Kaleida, uh, what happened in, in with CWA, what happened in other strikes that were occurring and looking around the world. And then we said, we're also going to be part of history. And we found out that the National Health Service in England, we got we got letters from, from Australia, from South Africa, from Kenya, from Colombia, when we went on strike. And there was an article in the British press that the nurses union in England, in Great Britain, cited the Montefiore strike and the open-ended strike as it moved them toward the decision to go on strike. People were thrilled to think that they were part of history. And, and that's a wonderful thing. But I want to say, Part of it is also luck and timing. You know, you when you have the right, right, all the things that come together at a certain point in time, and you know that that's your moment, then you have to seize that moment because you have much more momentum. So there's there's a little bit of luck and external factors involved in a successful strike too. I think to minimize that is it's it, you you have to have some things in place, and the timing for us was extraordinary. Right. Can I pick up on that? Just that one the luck and timing thing because I have a kind of a funny story about that, which is. Our contract in 2015 expired in August. For a lot of strategic reasons, we kept working, trying to narrow the issues down. We ended up going on strike Verizon in April of 2016, one week before the New York State Democratic presidential primary, and the union had endorsed Bernie Sanders. So you talk about, I mean, and it wasn't really exactly by design. Like, it's just kind of the momentum of bargaining led us to go on strike at that point, literally like eight or nine days before. And, you know, Bernie in the debate that took place at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, you know, later in the week, denounced the CEO of Verizon on national TV. Like sometimes things work out, you know, (laughs) not always, but sometimes they work out. Right. That's a good story. And I mean, some of the timing too is could be about the labor market and conditions of how tight the labor supply is. So I'm thinking too, you know, one of the reasons strikes fail, not not yours, but the idea that workers can be replaced and that you don't have enough leverage to really keep the place shut down. So I'm curious, uh, you know, I think you're both in unique industries, but it's not always the case. I remember, you know, my family was telephone workers. My grandmother was an operator. There'd be operator strikes. And my father, who was like a salesperson at PacBell, was like put into scab to work as an operator. So they used management to fill the jobs. I know that sometimes happens. But can you talk about that issue of um, replacement workers and how to keep the work shut down? I think that we, you know, both NISNA and CWA are in kind of a unique 
situation because we represent large groups of very highly skilled people who are who are harder to replace. And I guess I would say, Stephanie, that anytime you are contemplating a strike, anytime a union is contemplating a strike, you have to look at all these factors and see, is the labor market tight and will you be hard to replace? What will be the disposition of uh, the community or the political class? Are you going to get support? Are, do you have the right issues? You have to be very strategic. And I think you know, one of the things that's really challenging is I think if you look around the landscape, there are some unions that really haven't developed an understanding of the complexity of the strike challenge. And there are some leaders who are kind of caught in the old 50s, 60s, 70s mentality where if we just go out and we wait long enough, management will fold. And, you know, if you look at the history, starting with the PATCO strike and the aftermath of the PATCO strike, that's just not true anymore. You know, if management can figure out a way to break you and they want to break you, they can do it. They can outlast you in many, many instances. Maybe not in our industries where it's much harder, where, you know, the political pressure on hospital management to end a strike is very significant. So I think the answer to your question is you've got to be very strategic about this. You have to evaluate all those factors before you make the decision to do something that really is as risky as a, as a strike. Yeah. Judy, uh, can you comment on that too? The, the idea of replacement workers and how to hold the line? Yeah, of course, we're very privileged. We're highly skilled and there's a shortage. So we knew we kind of had them over a barrel. <clears throat> and well, there's not a real shortage, but there's a lot of people that don't want to work in hospitals right now. Um, and there's a somewhat of a shortage. I mean, we were in a place where we're highly skilled. There's not enough people to go around. And certainly, I think one of the things we thought of in, and in industries that were don't have that advantage. I think the thing is to try to coordinate strikes with other like industries so that whatever replacement workers or in, or in areas, you know, you want to try to be as strategic as you can be. That's really critical. So in our situation, we knew they'd bring in these mercenaries. And, you know, we, we, our biggest thing was not, we had, maybe I could count on my, out of 3,000 or 2,700 people, 10 crossed the picket. I mean, hardly anyone crossed the picket line. That was critical. We also knew that the work was really hard. And when the travelers came in, you know, we put a lot of pressure on the ones who were there before. You know, we said, are you going to cross the picket line? You know, some of them lied and some of them got nervous. And, you know, we put that kind of pressure. So that's a big issue. Uh, what was what happened, though, was that the travelers that did come in, a lot of them quit after one day. They said, this is ridiculous. And some of them even used the the union protest form and filled it out. <laughs> So, you know, they, they were sympathetic because there they were nurses as well. But yeah, replacement workers is, is, is a huge challenge and, you ha- and you're not allowed to do anything to them, you know, legally. So you, you, have to have, you have to have different thoughts. I do want to talk about something that, was, that impressed them and also was phenomenal. We had a plan because you, it's, in some industries, you can just go on strike. In our industry, you have a night shift that's going to leave and then the strike begins at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. How does that shift? How does that group of people leave when there's no one there that can be accused of abandoning a patient if they just walk out? You have to sign out. So we had a whole training for the night shift on writing up their report, making sure that all the patients were in good condition way before the deadline, calling managers all night who is going to take report from me and never stopping bothering them. Um, and then we had a team of rescuers that at about four in the morning entered the hospital, even though we were, some of us were still negotiating, entered the hospital and walked the floors and made sure that everyone went out together and, you know, handed the report, you know, advocated for people because some of them, you know, a lot of the newer, younger nurses are on the night shift and everybody walked out together. And when they walked out, the cheering of the people who were out there was 
you know, these people had never had that experience. And they just, we, they were the heroes of that day. And that was really important. And the travelers, the, the mercenaries who were there were just overwhelmed by the solidarity and, and, the, and the militancy. And then some people, some of them came out and said, oh, they have new hires that are working. They don't know their rights. So we ran in and we rescued them, you know, and had confrontations with HR. And when the nurses saw us confronting bosses, it was just, they just felt like, wow, it's like the Wicked Witch of the West, she melted, you know? And is that a good analogy? I don't even know if my analogies are time, timely anymore. But, um, but you know, people were so impressed with their power and so were the mercenaries. <laughs> I shouldn't say that, it's not fair. I shouldn't call them mercenaries, but we did call them mercenaries. But anyway, people people were really, really floored by that power relationship that completely shifted. And of course, winning a fantastic contract was the icing on the cake. But I think more powerful th than that, was the fact that the, the workers found out the, the institution could not function and that they had the power and the power in their numbers and the, the huge volume of people and the spirit and the music and the dancing and the chanting and the people coming. And I think, you know, different unions came and brought, you know, food and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was just, it was, it, it, people said they, it was a life-changing experience for them. I think some unions don't understand the value of that because that's really what it boils down to who has the power. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. That's a lovely story. And I think what you're both getting at is this idea that, you know, strikes can, it's our, the most powerful weapon that Libra has. And we've seen a lot of cases of workers just walking off the job, like fed up that day, striking, That's that happens. But really what you're talking about is a much more sophisticated approach that's also sees a strike as part of a much larger union building process. It's part of developing new leaders, it's developing union solidarity, and it's also thinking long-term because even if you win a great contract, you're going to need strong members to enforce that contract and make it real. So you've talked a bit about this because, you know, partly a strike could also demoralize, even if you win a contract, you might have leaders who like, I can't do this anymore, that took too much out of me or I I didn't they didn't replace themselves. Can you say a bit more about that? I think you've both shared some good stories, but strike as a school for union militancy and what's like the, the after effect? What do you see out of those um, new leaders uh, a year out or you know how are they building the union? I mean, we have kind of a unique situation because people have, you know, at the phone company from the point at which AT&T was broken up into the Baby Bells, people remember that in 1984, you know, was had been a, a national monopoly. We struck in 86, 89, 98, 2000, 2011, 2016. So, so there was this habit and tradition and culture of striking. And, you know, what I always like to point out is a strike is the only activity that a union engages in where the leadership and the organization has to know the disposition of every single member. I mean, we do a lot of things. We run political campaigns. We turn out volunteers for candidates. We run legislative campaigns, you know, in the state capitol or in Washington. We run contract campaigns that don't end up in strikes. But when you go on strike, you have to know where every member is. And that enforces a kind of organizational accountability and a democratic participation that's really unique. And I think really makes unions stronger when they go on strike. You know, I want to be really careful to say a strike is not an end in itself. Like you don't go into contract bargaining thinking, we really hope we go on strike. Because in truth, sometimes members do really want to go on strike. And I think Judy's uh, description of people's mood, which I think was in really deeply intensified by the crisis that COVID uh, imposed on hospitals. I mean, it was just a terrible 
terrible time to be a healthcare worker in a hospital. Um, people do want to go on strike, but most of the time they don't want to lose their pay, right? And so on the other hand, you know, going on strike does create this kind of organizational discipline, which really nothing else does. And so, and I think, you know, in, in my experience, leaders emerge in strike. When you go on strike, somebody in the local takes charge and says, okay, we got to have great ticket lines, or we got to have, you know, uh, we started leafleting the businesses of board members in Buffalo. Somebody took charge of that activity. These are the people who then become the next generation of local leaders. And so it's hard to strike a, a you know, a, an abstract balance. But I think if, if you're willing to, to prepare for a strike, and if you occasionally go on strike, I think you do build stronger organizations and, and develop real leadership. Yeah, I agree. You can't, you can't be irresponsible about this. You know, you really have to be strategic. And I think one of the things that's really important is for workers to understand that labor law, the grievance process is a little bit of a sham and that, you know, you do all the things according to the book. You know, you have your contract, you try to enforce it, you file grievances, and then you say, okay, that doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. We have to now wait for an arbitration. And, you know, then you do some job actions and people see a little more results there. You know, it's kind of internal bird dogging and people see that there's something there. But then when people are still not happy uh, and not getting what they need through that whole legitimate, quote unquote, process, I think then they're much more willing to move to other efforts. We don't say, well, let's file a grievance and that'll resolve the problem. I always tell people the internal grievance process is a kangaroo court and the external process is crapshoot. Let's be real about that. This is these laws that were initially designed to protect us are actually designed to stifle us. And we tell people that. And but but yeah, we need a union because it would be much worse without one. And here's all the other things we can do. I think knowing the hearts of your members and knowing where they're at is absolutely critical. You have different demographics, you have different needs, you have different, different everything. And you really have to say, you have to really listen to people and see what matters to them. And figure out what are the issues that concern them. And we have some sections of the hospitals that have more privilege than others. They're going to have a different relationship to what's going on and their needs will be different. But you raise consciousness to them about the people that are in the other areas that are more exploited. And we had to do that. That was very hard, but we had leaders who understood and explained to their members why they were doing this, where they came from. Because most people come from working medicine on a night shift, which is the worst, right? The, the least happy moment. And so people have to remember where they came from. So that's that's really important. And talking about going on strike, you know, that you absolutely have to have to have a basis for it. You can't have people take risks when there's no win in sight. You know, that's that's irresponsible. So it's not like, you know, it's not like you say, well, we're going to go on strike no matter what, but you do want to plant in people's mind that that is their ultimate weapon. And when people feel disempowered, I think our biggest problem was just saying when something's wrong, it's not the union's fault that something's wrong. It's the boss's fault that something's wrong. Even when we might have disagreements, I know for years we had a lot of disagreement with our leadership, but we didn't point the finger at them. We pointed, you know, there's internal union democracy is another struggle, but we point the finger at the boss. You know, the union is as, pow as powerful as you are. And a lot of times I think in unions, especially really powerful and active people, they, bl they blame the union way too much. And I'm not saying you shouldn't criticize your leadership if they're ineffective and inefficient or even corrupt, but you really have to focus. It is the boss is the main problem here, or the system is the main problem here, not the union, because people tend toward being anti-union. They've been raised to be anti-union. So that's a very important nuance when you're trying to develop union democracy to make sure that people understand the difference between who the primary target is and what you can do about the tool that you have in order to impact that, 
that target. Uh, we, we, we were very careful about that. I just want to say something about support when you go on strike from the community, because people are harmed when they're hospital, if they need a procedure or any kind of situation that you're going to go on strike, what happens to them. And we did a lot of preparatory work. We, we had a people's tribunal in December where for two hours, community people testified against the hospital and what they were doing and supported the nurses. And we told them we might go on strike. So because we had two big facilities in the Bronx, we said around the corner from Montefiore in the West is another hospital, North Central. If you have an emergency, go there. By Einstein, there's Jacoby, go there. If you have a procedure, get it done in December or wait till February. We don't think we'll be out much more than that. You know, that we told everyone what to do. We gave them alternatives. We met with them. We had been with them for the longest. And we had so much community support as a result. People were very sympathetic because they knew the conditions in which they were being cared for were substandard. And that, you know, we shared our demands with them. You know, we've had community people come to the bargaining table and talk about things. So I think when you're working in a service where people are going to be harmed in any way or inconvenienced, it's very important to bring them into the fact that your your struggle is their struggle and your win is their win. And that was critical when the nurses saw all these community people out supporting them, not just other unions, but actual pe- patients speaking at our rallies. That was everything, everything built on it. And I, I think that's very important. And I don't think some unions do that homework. You can't just say, hi, we're going on strike in a week. Don't, won't you support us? You have to be out there. Well, it's an exciting time to be talking about strikes, and I wanted to be sure to give out a message of solidarity to the writers who are on strike right now. Well, we'll see mm-hmm. when, when this podcast airs. We'll hopefully it's has a positive settlement. But and lots of uh, workers across the country um, and close to home here, Rutgers, New School, lots of strikes going on. And so, Bob, first, you're a historian of strikes. You're teaching a class on strikes. I'm curious as to your thoughts on this moment. If we're in an upsurge. And really, what are the lessons for workers uh, thinking about striking in this moment? I think, yes, uh, we are in a new period. I think for most of my career, and I assume for Judy's career, again, we're roughly uh, you know, in the same ballpark, we were living in the post-PATCO era of strike breaking. I mean, that you know, uh, when Reagan fired the air traffic controllers um, in 1981, when they went on strike, 11,000 350 air traffic controllers. Nobody really thought that he would do that and follow through with it. It sent a message to the employers of the United States, firing strikers is okay. Uh, And in fact, it's a good tactic. And if you look at the history of strikes, starting with Phelps Dodge the next year, the copper strikers in in Arizona, but then the Hormel meatpacking strike, the manufacturing strikes in Decatur, Illinois, Alien, Caterpillar, any number of them uh, ended up being broken by very aggressive employers who were using all kinds of new tactics. I feel like in the last, I don't know when you would date the period from, you know, the Chicago teacher strike in 2012, you know, I like our strike, you know, 2011, 2016. I think there's been, there's a new atmosphere. I mean, when we went out, for example, we were out for two weeks in 2011, the response from the community. This was six weeks before Occupy Wall Street erupted. And when it did, we were like, oh, that's what we were feeling on the street in in August of 2011. And I think Bernie, uh, I I think you have to give Bernie and to, to, you know, a somewhat lesser extent, Elizabeth Warren, real credit for sort of changing the metrics by which politicians are measured when they either do or don't support strikers. I mean, Bernie is like, he never hesitated. You know, he went right to the picket line anywhere he was and, and supported folks who were on strike. 
and I think galvanized a whole young generation of people who might not have known that much about the labor movement because we've shrunk so much that the labor movement was a good thing to support. So you have an atmosphere now, last five or 10 years, where the environment is much, much better for striking. I think the employer's willingness to replace people, I think, is, is reduced. And we're seeing a lot more support for unions. Unions have their highest you know, approval rating and polls and so on. So I think the challenge is, can enough people in the labor movement throw off the fears that have accumulated over the last 30 or 40 years in that strike-breaking period and take advantage of the new environment? And I mean, I think, yes, we're in a new period. There's definitely been an uptick in strikes. You know, we've seen these very exciting strikes like the NISA strike, like the UC strike, 48,000, you know, uh, academic workers in California, the biggest state university system in the country. You know, we've seen a bunch of these things happening, the Writers Guild, and obviously a lot of people are, are, are looking with a lot of anticipation at the UPS situation in July and the, and the big three auto situation in September. But we need to keep it in perspective. I mean, every year from 1947 to 1980, there were an average of 300 large strikes a year. Last year, I think there were 21. You know, so it's a little bit of an increase but it's nowhere near what was common in the pre-PACO era, you know, when, when strikes were really an accepted part of collective bargaining. So I think the answer is yes, new period, but number two, keep it in perspective. And number three, are members and labor leaders sufficiently aware that there's an opening here, that they're able to go through that opening and seize the opportunities? I do think, you know, you look at UPS, largest private sector employer in America, they're definitely preparing for a strike there. And they know that that, that strike could be extremely effective. So we'll see. Thanks. Judy, what would you say to folks on strike today or planning a strike? Any lessons that you want to share? Well, I certainly agree with what, what Bob was saying about the time we're in. But I think also, and not to be too medical about this, you know, I think a strike is a symptom and a partial cure, right? I think that the disease... <laughs> And this really relates to bargaining for the common good. I think that some of our union leaders are still very much internally focused. It's critical that we remember that when unions were strongest, it's when they promoted laws that helped everyone, not just union members. In the 30s, all the laws that were passed that uh, were a result of rank and file upsurge and strikes benefited everyone. And I, I believe not just social service unions or service unions, but all unions, even with UPS, you know, generating the thing that got sentiment support for the first, not the first UPS strike, but the big one that occurred with Ron Carey was that this pension issue and the part-time issue. Anyone who was going to retire was sympathetic to the pension issue. So many workers are being shoved into part-time jobs. That was much more than who the guy in the brown outfit that delivers your package. It had to do with identify with that struggle. And I think creating a struggle that people can identify with is really important. Of course, for the members and all the things we talked about internally, what's important in a strike matters. But if we're really going to build a labor movement, I think the leadership has to embrace issues like single payer, you know, climate issues with just transition, you know, all these things that matter to everyone. It'll get more people to be supportive of unions and it'll also have members be able to identify with the community and for the community to support the strike, which puts pressure on the employer. I think that's a critical issue that is not, there's not enough attention to that. And I think the other issue about people who are thinking about going on strike is that you have to pay attention to the issues on the shop floor. People might go on strike, but if they don't believe in the union or feel that the union has their back, you know, they'll be afraid of retaliation. You know, that's 
that's really important to have a successful strike that people are very aware that whatever I do, somebody has my back. They've had it before, they have it now, and they'll have it after. I think that's really important. So those are the kind of two issues that, you know, workplace action and being proactive in the workplace and identifying with your community and and making those links. I think they're critical. Wonderful. So I think as we move to wrap up, I just want to give you each a chance to say anything that I didn't ask about that you wanted to share. Well, I, actually, one comment on what Judy just said, um, which is the way she outlined the two important aspects of making a successful strike illustrates that there is a tension and a challenge. Because if you you definitely have to start where members are at, and members aren't necessarily always thinking about the big picture. And at the same time, you've got to translate those members' needs into something that the public can identify with. You know, and I think you're absolutely right that the 1997 UPS strike, they, you know, part-time America doesn't work. People understood that part-time jobs were a bad thing. And so they took the shop floor issues and they channeled them into that, that message. We did a very similar thing in 2016. We were very conscious about, we're not going to make this strike about healthcare cost shifting because everybody's paying more than we are already. We're going to make it about good jobs in the U.S. and the question of offshoring because people have experiences with that. All these call center jobs are being shipped overseas from people who are making, in our case, $35 or $40 an hour to people who are making $2 an hour, you know, um, if they're lucky. So I do think how you translate that requires sophistication and thought on the part of leadership. I'll just reiterate what I said before in terms of the big picture. There's an opening. And it's really important for the labor leadership to understand that there are opportunities here to make a difference in workers' lives and to project issues of concern to the community that have been hard to find, you know, in past decades. But I think we we have an opportunity here and you're seeing that reflected in a lot of these very exciting strikes. I mean, I think the Writers Guild is doing a good job. I mean, they are saying, what are we going to do about AI? We, you know, we don't want you know, some computer doing all of our work. We want to preserve human creativity. I think that's an issue that resonates with the public. So I I, I think, you know, it remains to be seen whether or not, you know, the labor movement will seize this opportunity. Thank you. Yeah. Judy? I think that people, we have to break away from the community versus the union, you know, from the public, you know, this thing of community. And I think that's critical that people have to identify with their neighborhoods. Like we, we try to train people that if you see an issue in your neighborhood, get involved in that issue. You know, some people got very involved with some of the stuff in um, climate stuff in their community. The climate issue was a union issue as well. You know, food deserts. Well, for us, it's a little easier because of the social determinants of health and how we can link that to our, our stuff. But I think that having people identify that the union is not just about the members. We did have a situation where our benefits and pensions were threatened about, I think, about 20 years ago. And that was the big issue. So we knew that that was what people are going to talk about, but we were in a poor community. So our whole thing was everyone should have the right to retire with dignity and the right to free health care. We're pushing that envelope because if we win it, we know that we can it, can it can happen for others. And the community supported that. But we had to make sure that every nurse understood that narrative and believed in that narrative, that it wasn't just about me. Because I think at that time, the union was saying, well, nurses take care of people. We should have good health care. We said, no, that's not the, that's not the issue. The issue is that everyone should have good health care. Everyone has the right to the things that we're fighting for. We're so fortunate that we have a union that can help us fight for that. We wish everyone had one. And I think that if your struggles are something that people can identify with, 
and also raise consciousness that everyone needs a union or some collective body to fight for those things, that we can really build a movement here. Because I don't see a movement as just organized labor as it stands now. There's worker centers, there's people who form little committees. Understanding collective action and the fact that the workers make the wheels turn, not the bosses, are, are the critical issues. So I think that, like I said, strike is a symptom. It's a partial cure. It's not the only thing. It's all the other work that goes into it. Yeah. And I love that way of thinking about it. And, and I also love that uh, what you both emphasized is this notion that strikes also can win tremendous important material gains for members, but they can also result in a change of consciousness and a sense of possible. That feeling that you get when you realize, oh yeah, we are the ones who make this job go. We are the ones that make this company what it's worth. And that is a, a beautiful feeling that people really have in this society. So Thank you both so much for sharing your uh, lessons and thoughts on this important topic of striking. And we'll see you both on the picket lines. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you.